Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. Episode disclaimer, as you'll hear in this episode, my microphone was on its way out. At least my guess sounds good. That's what matters, right? Thanks for your patience with the audio quality. A new mic has already arrived, and we will be back to sounding better in our next episode. I became aware of my next guest through a medium I have admittedly barely explored, and yet have heard much about recently, the short-form video-sharing platform TikTok. Nick Cho, also known as Your Korean Dad, has millions of views on his videos that span a range of topics that often have a subtle yet clear social message. In one of his videos, he responds to a question about whether he supports LGBTQ kids. His response is empathetic, caring, and inclusive in a way I want to encourage other men to use as a model. In less than 30 seconds, he shows so much healthy father-like support that is often missing for LGBTQ folks. It will definitely be worth your time to look him up if you haven't already followed him. Nick is also in the coffee business as a co-founder and co-CEO of Wrecking Ball Coffee in San Francisco. Personally, he identifies as a father, as a Korean-American, and as an entrepreneur. I've already had the chance personally to connect with him around the topic of masculinity, and I'm so excited to have him share his rich and thoughtful perspectives with all of you as well. So let's find out more about him. Welcome to The New Masculine, Nick. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. It's been a fun new connection through a platform that I know very little about that you're a part of that it seems funny because um, age-wise, I should be of the generation that's using it more than you, but... <laughs> But I, I have no idea about it. So l- welcome us into your world. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, um, I'm 46 years old right now. I'm I'm married. My wife, Trish, and I run Wrecking Ball Coffee Roasters together. Um, as you mentioned, I, I'm Korean-American. I was born in Korea, but my family immigrated when I was like one and a half. So I grew up um, here in the United States, actually on the East Coast in the Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia um, area in Fairfax County. 703, whoop, whoop. Um, I'm yeah, cisgender, heterosexual. Um, and yeah, like TikTok has been so funny. I mean, I a lot of my life, I feel like, has been really defined by, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot more recently, sort of like the immigrant experience. And not like, the you know, when people talk about, people who are not immigrants think about the immigrant experience 
you tend to picture like the journey either on a boat or over land or even like in an airplane. But for me, I'm talking about more just the, the kind of assimilation, the learning, the, the, uh, the time spent with that never really ends as an immigrant, just exploring what it means to be in this situation, like an American, right? An American, but that wasn't necessarily born here. And, um, yeah, and just that just general search. And so things like TikTok just end up sort of like kind of in the Venn diagram sort of falling in that same category of like, this is something that I'm going to explore and look into and, and what can I learn? Can I, can I learn the ropes? Can I, can I do this? Can I be successful at it? Or is this going to be a reminder that maybe it's like, you know, that it's, it's not so easy all the time? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about your perspective and the, what you share on your TikTok through your Korean dad? Yeah. So the, my TikTok journey, so to speak. So I have two teenage daughters and they said, you know, you should really look at TikTok as a thing to do in terms of content creation. Um, not just watching. Um, I, I've been making little fun videos since I was in, in high school myself. And so, you know, they've, they've known this and, and they've, been the in front of the camera at times when making just kind of fun stuff uh we made a lot of vines when vine was a thing and sometimes instagram videos and, and stuff like that we'll do christmas cards and birthday cards like as little videos um and so they said you know it should be a thing that 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 you could do and do well and they said yeah you should probably make little coffee videos since that's your expertise um i started doing that but Right away, I kind of got bored with it because that's my day job and, and it's not always the most fun thing to do. And so I thought about like, well, what could I do instead? And the thing that came to mind is, well, I'm a dad, I'm a father, so there's that. And especially now, I thought, you know, it would be interesting to kind of put out there this idea of a Korean American like dad and, and a Korean American man. Um, especially in a subversive way, in a way that wasn't playing into stereotypes and in, and in fact was meant to subvert those stereotypes. So I kind of created this character and, and anyone who's familiar with TikTok might have the, have understanding about the idea that like content creators tend to do well if they find a niche or like a, a sort of a lane of cat of content to stick to. So if you're doing a dance, if you're a good dancer, then stick to dancing. Like, if you make one that's like a dance and then the next one's political commentary and the next one's a magic trick, it's like it tends to not build an audience very well. And so, um, yeah, so I thought like, yeah, your Korean dad, your Korean dad's a nice dad, is, is loving and nurturing. A little bit of what, you know, people call the POV sort of point of view as if you, the viewer, are inhabiting the identity of, of like my child in this situation. And... Yeah, so I kind of had this idea and I started, I, and I ran with it. And so it was like, hey, I'm your Korean dad. Let's go shopping at the grocery store. Hey, I'm your Korean dad. Let's go, you know, let's go for a walk in the woods or something like that. Let, you know, one of them was like, hey, I'm your Korean dad. Like, let's go skateboarding. I, you know, I'll teach you how to skateboard. And then right away, it's like, I don't actually know how to do this, you know, <laughs> but, but, um, but the kids, you know, in the video, like the kid does and, and is really good. Um, so, I thought they'd be fun and cute and, you know, put it all out there. Like, you know, Korean culture is pretty popular with K-pop and Korean food and movies and things like that. And so I thought maybe that would kind of create like a nice little thing that I could live with and that would be fun and, and it would be motivated. I'd be motivated to 
keep it going. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's been, it has been all those things, but then it's been so much more and a big sort of thing that I didn't anticipate at all was the idea that um, not everyone has a dad or not everyone has a loving dad or a nice dad or one that's around or, you know, so I, I've been getting, I mean, with TikTok, it's overwhelming and it sounds like hyperbole, but it's not like thousands of thousands of messages like every week from people, particularly young people who are just expressing an outpouring of, um, of thanks and appreciation, but also grief and, um, and longing and mourning. Uh, these are people who, um, don't have a dad never had a dad don't know what it's like uh whose dad died in some circumstances in other circumstances that do have a father but that are abusive in some way or neglectful and that kind of i mean i guess the word is catharsis but like that side of it and that that would kind of touch that nerve was something that i didn't plan for i didn't anticipate i didn't know was going to happen and um, I'm thankful for it. I'm appreciative um, in a lot of ways, you know, because because it, it does it does mean a lot to me as well. But um, wow, it, it was a lot at first, and it, even now I'm still getting used to it. Yeah, I imagine. I think that's kind of why I felt really drawn to having you as a guest on this podcast is because uh, as I saw your message to LGBT folks and kids um, who are LGBT, there is a there are missing positive male figures in many of our lives in many of in many places we get rejected we get sometimes at best we get tolerated not even accepted not loved we don't even get to have that sort of emotional connection to our fathers sometimes and so you going on there even in 30 seconds you can model something in a way that is not cramming something down someone's throat is not lecturing somebody about what they should do it's just modeling something and allows people to receive something that's really powerful. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I, and, and thanks for saying that. I mean, that was one. And, and hopefully there'll be more that kind of cover that same sort of, of, of range, so to speak. But for me, it was that, you know, in my own life, um, I, I think for a lot of folks who are engaged in any part of social change, and especially like right now with everything that's changed just in the past, like five, 10, 15 years or so, uh, whether they be around black lives matter or around, as you said, like LGBTQ issues or, um, you know, a host of things that with social media, things get like very, very quickly. uh, I almost use the word devolve, but I don't mean to say it in such a, disparaging way but the fact is that they very often get reduced down to memes and cliches um even black lives matter itself like those words can for a lot of folks i think are already sort of over it like over those words as being like encompassing all that they purport to like that's that's a lot like the whole black lives matter movement is not just about mattering you know and and you can kind of delve into that word but it's like that's not sufficient right it's it's really about equality and equity and and justice. And so um, I try to find ways of saying things in my own way. 
but that ultimately not just express that I understand, but that to some degree that I share, I, I can feel some of your pain, you know, through it. I, I did one that was during the, um, when the, uh, about a week or two after the George Floyd, you know, uh, protests and the, and the Black Lives Matter protests started happening again this summer that was specifically directed to, to black people. Um, and that message, you know, said like, it, it wasn't one, again, that was about like just repeating the stuff that you can find on Instagram or Twitter, like, but in, you know, coming for me this time, like that wasn't enough because I don't know that that's sufficient. That's, that's not what I would want. I would want more than that. I would want to feel seen. And, and so I said, like, on, on that message, like, I, I see you, I see how tired you are and how this is exhausting. And it's really painful to, to be out there, you know, thinking about this, reliving these things. And, and yeah, just like wanted to focus on that one part of it. And, and, you know, like with the LGBTQ message, which in that situation, my message fundamentally was about, again, like how, how it can be hard. And it's, it's a lot. And it's a lot not knowing if people and wondering if people are going to accept you, like kind of starting from that position of doubt, um, that that's really hard. And that's not really something I've experienced personally in my life, but it doesn't take that much for me to be able to empathize in that way and ultimately like see how that might be um, a big, uh, a big part of people's experiences, but also one that doesn't get talked about very often. And it sounds like you have some perspective on it, but you're also like living in this character and living in this, in, in this content that you're creating. And so I wonder if you actually sometimes know the level of how radical that is hmm. to see a man who's just showing up saying, I see you calling out specific groups of people to, to increase representation so that people who are viewing your content know, Oh, he means me too. It's not, right. oh, he means these people, but probably not me because I'm gay or because I'm black or because I'm something else. It's just that you're like actually calling out representation and not just saying, yeah, I'm fine with you. It's, it's saying, I love you. I see you. I see your struggle. I'm proud of you. I heard mm. I, proud was a word that I, that I remember you saying on yeah, your video yeah. towards the LGBTQ kids. And, and that's really powerful. I don't, it's just something that I hope that you, on top of the messages that you're hearing from people as a person myself who's doing masculinity work and having these conversations a lot, it is pretty radical for someone to take their platform to take their visible where they're seen in the world and to make it about seeing others and empathizing and putting themselves yourself in their, in their shoes. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, in that phrase, that sentence, like I see you, right. The emphasis can be on any one of those three words. You know, it can be about I see you. Like, it's about me. You know, not just other people, but me. Like, I, I'm the one who's seeing you. Like, if, if, I was, if I was some kind of celebrity or whatever, would it be important that you feel seen by that person? Like, maybe. You know, I, I see you. Like, I, there's a lot of things, and I also see you. Like, that's nice, too. But I really personally wanted to focus on the you part that – Ultimately, it's about feeling like a connection um, through this goofy medium of TikTok that's full of memes and, and dances and things like that. Like, is there a way to, to speak to a, a, the person themselves and, 
Um, and for me, it's, you know, it's, it's like a lot of things on the internet. It's his own little challenge of sorts. Like, can I, can I break through it in that way? And, um, the feedback I get that it is, is that I have, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's been wild in that way, but like, you know, the thing I talk about a lot in this, uh, around this is specifically about, I guess, my hero, like Mr. Rogers, you know, we talk about, uh, in the past couple years, I guess there's been two prominent films, one that was a fictionalized story, uh, starring Tom Hanks. And then there was the, the documentary as well. Um, one's like, I don't, I don't remember what they're called. I think one's like Beautiful Day Neighborhood. Another one's Won't You Be My Neighbor. You know, like the two most famous Mr. Rogers catchphrases. But, um, you know, I've been sharing with people that I was really afraid to watch those movies because Mr. Rogers really has been a big hero of mine. Like I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so I grew up with Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street were in many, many ways like my American parents. Like, uh, you know, I have Korean parents that we immigrated with, but that I learned English watching Sesame Street. And so much of, of my upbringing was really informed by Mr. Rogers. And, and only now do I see how um, influential he was in my life um, in, in, in combination with other people that have really been my mentors growing up but when you look at mr rogers i think that like especially when he was still on tv um he was the butt of a lot of jokes and kind of as you know and there was actually a lot of conversation about whether or not he was he was straight or not because of the way he carried himself for a lot of people it read uh, it read gay it read effeminate in some way yeah the anti-masculine in some way his, everything about him right a and but the thing about Mr. Rogers that if you let yourself pay attention is the incredible, incredible strength that lies in that, in that person, in that human being, like in a way that is so singular in focus, completely focused on the health and well-being of children, especially in an emotional, psychological way, uncompromisingly so that like really there's no one like him that I can think of in like in history maybe even like I'd have to think about it some more but I can't think of anyone off the top of my head um you know who had one single focus that was so important but that he dedicated his, so much of his life to in that way and you know to me it's like you know we're talking about masculinity obviously I struggle as as any man does with that word masculine and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And for that matter, nowadays, when we talk about uh, gender as being less sort of a binary um, than, than in generations past, in the way we talked about it, then I'm left with questioning, you know, in that way, it's that, that, that I think that our society is, whether like, is, is this really even a thing? you know, that we can name and that we are entitled to even talk about. Like by talking about it, are we wishing it into existence, this thing that maybe we should, we should do away with as a concept because of the ways that it can oppress people. But the, the flip side of it is that there is, you know, it's not, is it purely a social construct? Is it just a thing that we make up because we, we like a certain type of order and power structure in our, in, 
in human existence? Or is there something that's more base, that's more like almost genetic, that's part of our evolution, that's, that's developed in this way? And then I look at Mr. Rogers and I, and I, I just think about how I don't know the answer to those, those other questions. What I do know is that like, that's the, that man right there. I want to be more like him. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the questions you're asking and I think they're so appropriate for the broader conversations hosted on this podcast around, is it nature? Is it nurture? Is there something that comes genetically through testosterone and being male um, biologically that, that creates masculinity or is it the social construct? And I, I guess where I keep landing as I keep exploring that is, is that our ideas of masculinity have changed over time. Like the 1950s male is very different than the masculine ideals of right now. The masculine ideals of the late 1800s, very different than what they are now. And so if they're evolving and changing, that to me feels like there is this huge element of the social landscape of everything. I think you're getting to also see as social media comes around and we see we're more exposed to different kinds of things, you see the way, like even just the male physique over time and the ideals around the male physique. And now we have all these Instagram bodies and superhero bodies that we're paying attention to. And it shifts the, the dynamic and the cultural language. It used to be that men who took care of their appearance that, that much were like to weightlift and to have abs were probably gay or less masculine in our culture. And all of a sudden now that's the ideal and that's the extremes that we need to go to in order to find, in order to live up to that masculine ideal. So to me, whether or not they are, you can decide they're, they, it squarely lands in one nature or nurture. Nurture has a ton to do with it and has a huge role that it's playing. Sure, for sure. And the way that I tend to think about these things is that there, there is a biological basis, you know, to a lot of things. There's a biological basis to violence and, and to like a lot of things that, that people do biological basis to selfishness and and all these things but that you know ultimately our sort of like ultimate calling as a human species and the thing that that maybe defines us as you know as who we are is um you know whereas for animals you know like one way to sort of frame the difference between us and animals is that like animals are stuck with their base sort of instincts and that's the, the the realm that they live in. Whereas for us, it's it's like whether you believe in a higher power or not, you know, like we're called to um, to struggle with those base instincts and ultimately to come out of of that struggle um, in a, in a way that's healthy for ourselves and for everyone else too. It's interesting. I've never really thought about it as like part of part of what 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 separates us and makes us different from the rest of the animal kingdom is that sort of existential crisis, that existential like, what did I come into this world as versus who? What can I become? And that constant tension between instinct, uh, survival mechanisms, and then this like social creature that we've developed into as humans. Yeah, I think that as as men, I mean, even like the whole subject of sexual violence becomes really scary because, you know, and this is, again, is something that I feel like, like I've never heard really discussed and I've seen a little bit written about it, just about like, is it in man's nature to be violent when it comes to our sexuality? 
And, you know, I think I can talk about these things on your podcast, like even sort of positing to, to um, some of my friends who are women and, and talking, you know, who are, you know, as anyone should be like very vocally, you know, speaking out against sexual violence, then asking like, but, you know, in an intimate situation and with a consenting sort of like environment, like, do you like for your male sexual partner to get a little bit like rough in, in that context. And like most of the time they'll say, yes, that's appealing in some ways. Like, well, how do we reconcile that? You know, how do, how do you say like, I want violence, just not more than this much, you know, kind of thing, you know? And of course, like consent is ultimately the, the way that we talk about it. Like consent is the thing that, that kind of is like the pass of sorts, but, you know, I feel like uh, for a lot of men, like it ends up being some degree of confusing for them, like how to reconcile that still. It's like if the gate is a gate up or down <laughs> in terms of being able to express yourself in that way ends up being about consent. It, it just, it just, it's not the most, it, it externalizes something, right? It externalizes that. Um, that manage, managing of your own kind of inclinations. Whereas, uh, I, you know, a, a healthier place to do that would be to more internalize that, like more on the inside. Like, is this a, you know, a thing that lives in me and how do I deal with it? How do I pers- live with this like every day, not just when, when, it's, when it's a certain kind of situation? Yeah, and I just feel like I, 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 I feel pain and, and I'm sad like a lot for, for men in general there are these like complex nuanced issues that we really deserve and 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 you know the, the non-men out there also sort of deserve and demand for these things to get worked on for us to do that work as they say but that fundamentally like either we don't give ourselves the space or the time or the vocabulary or any of like very almost none of the tools to be able to um to, to really address these things. And so then we're left just kind of feeling a, another version of inadequate. And then for a lot of men, then it becomes like this, the toxic masculinity thing, as we sometimes refer to it, like kind of comes, creeps back in because of that confusion and that uncertainty. Well, it's a, it's a snake eating its own tail. It, yeah. it reinforms itself. It's, and to me, that when I see that playing out, based on my sort of background in social work and psychology, that to me often comes when there is trauma and like a trauma pattern is self-informing in that way and re and re and keeps itself going in that same loop. And I think that it's not just that we haven't, as men haven't given ourselves the tools. It's that our culture doesn't give us the tools. Our culture actually takes those tools away from us at a very early age, telling mm-hmm. us what it is that we need to be in order to be a man in this culture. And I have had guests on this podcast that have written books and are psychologists that are talking about the relationship between masculinity and violence and sexual violence and sexual coercion. And there is no biological trait that's found that increases violence between men and women. But what they're starting to posit and look at is, is that the ways that we tell little boys to avoid their vulnerable and caring emotions and we don't teach little boys how to experience empathy is we put this artificial gap between us and the opposite gender or people of other genders that don't 
have the same experience of us, where there's this distance between us, which once there's that distance there and you don't, and your ego gets triggered, then you're able to treat someone less than human or less than you and use power dynamics over. And so there's, there is a lot of exploration. And I would encourage people that are listening to this podcast, if you haven't listened to the episode with Dr. Ronald F. Levant, it, it does go into this concept that it's not causation. There's masculinity does not cause violence. But there is a strong correlation, and yet the vast majority of men are also not violent and are not participating in sexual violence that's not consensual. And so how do we like tease out that relationship to create a safer world for all people? Yeah, especially when we don't, like, you, like you're saying, like this, especially when we don't talk about these things. So much of our socialization really is, is yeah, based on... Um, what we observe in others and sort of an assessment of what's normative and what's not. You know, one of my favorite subjects, which I actually have made a TikTok about as well, is is bathroom habits. Like just the idea that like in general, like when you're going number two or number one, that like your parents train you in terms of what to do or some caregiver when you're a child teaches you that. And then no one ever sees you do it again until, you know, maybe in some, some for some, um, uh, uh, you know, couples and, and intimate partners, sometimes you, you observe certain things and then it becomes conversation there too. Like, wait, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, who, who, who taught you how to do that? You're you doing know? that wrong. That's yeah. not how I do it. Right. But like when you've lived your whole life doing it a certain way and not even considering or having to consider or like observing any other way to do it, you know, kind of thing. And, and how does that, you know, manifest in so many other things that we do or don't do? Yeah, it's so clear. Like even as you were starting to talk about bathroom habits, it made me think of like even the culture and socialization that we have around as men about what we do and don't do in the bathroom together. When we're standing mm-hmm. here, where your eyes are, do you speak, do you not speak? There are very clear social rules there that I'm not sure anybody sat us down and verbally said, don't do this, do do this. Right. We pick it up through observation. And there are real consequences to violating those social norms. And so I think in most ways, that's how masculinity, the challenging parts of masculinity gets embedded in many of us is that it's not always that we're told and sat down and said, you have to do this. It's way more under in the undercurrents and much more in the, in what we observe in those, in the men around us and in the stories we watch on television. And you, you had this healthy masculine archetype of, uh, of Mr. Rogers but lots of kids don't have that as their figure to look towards, to model themselves after. Or, or you know, and, and I think that this, you know, is part of it too. Or they look at Mr. Rogers and they consume him. They experience what he's giving. But uh, for whatever reason, it, it's not a modeling for them. Like, I think that that idea of modeling uh, in my experience anyway, um, and I, I don't know exactly how to explain this, but I think I, I think I see you nodding your head. I think you know what I mean, that like there's they're just different people in that way. And they're people for whom maybe it's like, you know, when we talk about leadership or things like that. But, you know, there are people for whom you look at someone like Mr. Rogers and you think about how you can be like that. And there are others for whom like they can't get there. Like they're still they're very much sort of tuned to like a consumption sort of pattern of like experiencing him and taking sort of what he has to offer 
but not really going any further than that. Well, he's an outlier. He's easy to dismiss as just a, oh, that, that worked for him. Right. But that, and I think so much of our consumption is about like, okay, well, how do I make this work for me? How do I show up in a way that this world accepts and loves and I have success like he had on his television show? And so when he's an outlier and not lining up with the standard ideas of masculinity, then it's easy, it's much more easy to dismiss and just consume, but without making it mean anything about me and what I need to do. Mm. How did you, what was it about him that sort of shifted that for you, but made you actually want to internalize some of that? Um, I think that, I mean, he cared about what I care about. And, and maybe that's, that's part of it too, right? Is, is that he, it, Mr. Rogers was in a way like part of his whole, whole, you know, shtick, so to speak was that he was less concerned with being entertaining. And, uh, you know, he had sort of like sort of baseline level of being entertaining with puppets and such. But, you know, talked a lot about just like, he would just sit there and, and just enjoy, you know, 15 seconds of just the, the, the fish tank just bubbling away. And it was so countercultural and so subversive you know, for that time and even more so like today uh, when that kind of idea of dead air is so terrifying for, for people, especially in broadcast media. Um, but yeah, I do think about, I mean, in that situation, it's like Mr. Rogers is there for everyone, I, but I, there's a much smaller subset of people for whom like he's necessarily a hero to model. I do think that there's something to the idea of... Um, looking at somebody like that and thinking to yourself, I want to be like that. I want to be like that for other people that, you know, you can say that. And then the next step is being able to somehow adapt that into your life. And, you know, part of the Mr. Rogers deal is that he never, like they say, and I think his wife was quoted in the documentary. Like he never forgot it, about what it was like to be a child. And I remember being a child and, and I remember committing to myself, like promising myself, like, Nick, you're never going to forget what it's like to be a child. And the reason you say that is because so many other adults seem to forget. And what makes me special in that regard? Or am I, you know, am I, you know, full of shit in that way? Like, I don't, you know, that's a whole different thing. But I mean, I think my, my family and my kids would attest like that if there's one of the things that's been consistent is that, that I do seem to understand, you know, what it's like to go through the things that they're going through, even if it's not the exact same thing, but that, that, um, yeah. And, and so what is it about other adults that makes, makes it so much harder, if not impossible for them to remember, um, in that way. And I don't know, like, I, I, I don't know whether to credit my parents and others that, that helped raise me, that gave me so much love that that um, that it, it kind of opened that pathway for me in a way. Like I think that's the cliched kind of answer. Um, I also think that it's just my like psychology and just the way that I'm brought up, like just the way that I am. Um, it happens to be like almost like a muscle of sorts, um, maybe you know. Uh, but what's clear is that I, I don't want it, you know, in any one of these circumstances. Like I don't want to. I don't want to sort of overstate 
the 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 rarity or the exceptionalism or like whatever regarding these things like i i everyone's different and everyone has different sort of tunings in that way and i don't know just like for any one of us like i don't know why i'm the way that i am but i can i can do my best to talk about it i guess well, I, and I, I value that, that you don't want to overstate that, but I may overstate it for you hmm. because I, because I do have a value system around, there are a lot of things in our culture that get a lot of attention and they get overstated and that get forced down our throat over and over and over that I, they're high impact, but they're low substance and they're low, con- they're not connective in, in the ways that I see you doing that. And so while you may not want to overstate some of your qualities and things you model yourself after, it's part of my value system to keep lifting up, especially men who are being more connective, who are being more empathetic and putting themselves in other people's experiences to help them understand the world rather than their own perspective being the only thing that informs their worldview. Because I just, I mean, we're seeing a lot on our political landscape. We're seeing a lot in our entertainment industry that it's it's there's a lot of challenges right now that are going on and so if we don't lift up voices that are saying that are doing it well and saying hey i do want to be like that i do want to model after your korean dad i do want to (laughs) if we're not doing that then those voices aren't heard and they're not part of the mix and how we continue evolving this conversation yeah yeah i mean a, a big part of my kind of worldview or the lens that I look at everything through is really sort of my whole life kind of wrestling with that idea of racial justice in America, just being such an important, prominent part of kind of our American story, our collective as well as individual stories. And, but ultimately as a Korean American person and man, trying to find my own place in that, you know, both of those things. You know, I, I, because it's about people and about big questions around people. Um, anyone, anytime I hear, oh, someone's going to talk about race or today we're going to talk about race, like my ears would perk up. And then within a, a minute or two, my, I would, my heart would sink a little bit because I'd realize like, oh, this is about black, white issues, you know, literally like black, like the black community and, 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 you know, white people and, and, and such and such you know, just for over decades and trying to figure out how that relates back to me and my experience in that way. <laughs> Am I supposed to pick one of those two sides and just jump on and jump in there? Like, is that how it works? Or is it that like, I'm supposed to wait my turn and it's never going to get a turn, you know, kind of thing. But realizing, you know, in the past, I'd say five to 10 years, so I that the, everything started taking clear, more clear shape to me. And just the ways that um, that ultimately it, it really is about taking a step back, like looking at the reality of the situation, understanding what I understand about people and our inclinations, motivations, incentives, and such, and starting to try to fill in the blanks that aren't filled in for me, you know, again, knowing for what I know from experience. So, you know, so, so ultimately like, you know, not that I can encapsulate these things in like one or two sentences, but, you know, starting to realize, oh, what's going on here is that we want equality for all people. But there's this, there's this, the most urgent topic is 
the experience of black people in America and, and that facet of racial justice for that part of the community. And that's the most urgent. And it's not that my stuff and the stuff that I deal with in terms of racism or such is less important, but it is actually, actually like because of the history of America, because of our legacy, because of history and what's ongoing to this day that it just, you know, and so sometimes it's problematic to think about this as an analogy, but it's like having a family and, and there, there are, you know, one of the siblings has a, a, you know, an, an issue that needs dealing with that takes a more tension. And, you know, maybe we all know people who are like that, who are in families where like one or two of the kids just kind of swallowed up all the attention from the family and, uh, and the ways that it creates its own kind of pain. But it's also like, but that's kind of, I mean, how, how else are you going to do it? And, and, and understanding the ways that dealing with black issues in America when those are addressed, that it actually helps everybody else too. It helps Asian Americans. It helps you know Latinx people um, because of the way these things are, are are put together. And for that matter, thinking a lot about you know white people, white identity in America, and the ways. And this is where the strongest analogy goes back to the idea of masculinity, in that when you're the majority, and with the creation of white identity a hundred some odd years ago you know, in the early 1900s, uh, that through that process, there's a loss that no one kind of accounted for at the time. This idea that like when you s- decide, you know, as a culture, it's less important for us to be Irish and French and Italian and, and whatever. When that's less important than, you know, not being black or not being Chinese or whatever that sort of framing is, and developing this white American identity that is essentially like a bunch of plants deciding like, well, who needs roots anymore? You know, the, the, the green stuff's the important part, you know, kind of thing. And that there's a huge loss there. And that not only is it gone and missing, but people don't even realize it. Because now that we're two, three, four generations into where it's not part of our collective societal conversation to talk about how important it is to feel those ties back to the old country kind of thing, you know? And, and so it just quietly kind of like, like a, like a fart in the wind, it kind of just like whisked away almost without a trace, but where it shows up is in everybody else. Like all people of color, like majority of people of color feel like an emotional, almost like spiritual tie to the place that their people came from. And when you talk to most white Americans, the answer is no, they don't feel that. And like, how do you, how do you start to rebuild that then? Because to me, like that's one of the keys to actual like racial harmony, if there's such a thing, is that white people have to sort of get back in touch with their roots and start to understand that, you know, you coming from your, you know, grandparents coming from England and from France is just like my grandparents coming from Korea. And that until we like, until those things are be able, we can hold those two things up uh, as, as being equal, then there'll never be, you know, that type of, 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 you know, peace that we want to see. And so when it comes to gender as well, it's like in, in all the ways that with, 
you know, and no one uses this phrase, but I've been using it like with like male supremacy, you know, it's, 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 it's the sort of that idea of like white supremacy, male supremacy, sometimes like there's, you know, cisgender supremacy and hetero supremacy. People say heteronormative a lot when I think they mean hetero supremacy, you know, but we don't use that word because it sounds more scary. Um, but it's more accurate. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, supremacy is more accurate because ultimately it's not just about being normative, but that it's, it's being treated as it's better. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and superior in that way. And so when, when we have this legacy of male supremacy and male normativity in our culture, you know, what are all the ways that uh, we've been, you know, through that process, we've sort of lost the, the you know, I, I know that you kind of took issue with it, but I'll still stick to this idea of like kind of losing a lot of the tools to, to um, you know, either they're out of reach and we have to kind of figure out how to stretch like that, or we have to kind of like rebuild them from scratch, you know, to, to the purposes that are, that fit this context, but that, you know, as much as we observe women and non-men fighting for feminism, intersectional feminism and equality in that way, and seem in many ways to be able to articulate what the issues are, there's this firewall that they come up against where it reaches into us as men. And, um, and it feels that a lot of times like this foggy area where it's like a lot of men don't know how to talk about it right now with this pandemic stuff. Like I was in um, a conversation with some women where they were talking about like, where is this, where does this thing come from where some men seem to equate like masculinity with not wearing face masks. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they had this whole thing. They were, they were talking about these women about uh, just this sort of idea that's been spread through Trump and through social media that like, you know, wearing a mask is somehow uh, not as masculine. And I said, that that all makes sense. I think that the greater issue is masks are a little bit uncomfortable. And men tend to not, like we have, have been socialized and sort of like the world has been built around our comfort in a lot of ways. And so that discomfort, uh, we can't say that. So instead, men will come up with all kinds of excuses as to why you shouldn't have to wear a mask or I shouldn't have to wear a mask. But when actually the fundamental thing that no one's saying and no one will admit is that it's just it's 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 scratchy, it's ouchy, it's hot under here. Like, you know, we can't we can't let ourselves say that. Why is it that you think we can't say that? Like, what's the thing in in masculinity where where we've now been told that we can't say this is uncomfortable or this is inconvenient for me or something like that. We have to swing it all the way into this is a affront on my personal rights as a person. Yeah. I, I, I sometimes will hold this up, to, you know, almost like a x-ray and with a light box or something. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll like mentally hold things up to this, these different sort of lights to sort of examine it. And with men specifically, I think about, um, that sort of idea of men and purpose in your life, this idea that like, you know, when you talk about retirement for men or uh, when someone becomes physically disabled or, or you know, in a, in some other sort of disability when, when they weren't before or, you know, a whole, a whole host of things that change men's perceived usefulness, you know, in, to themselves, you know, how, how that affects that. Um, so I think that that's, again, a thing that, that 
uh, I personally haven't don't hear talked about very much, but that is such at it almost feels like it's part of our biology, right? That like, you know, men need purpose, like like a job, like give me a job, like that that whole joke about you had one job, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know, tends to be sort of like very very hit home for men. It's like uh, you know, men tend to have like a primary and secondary job and function, it, whether it's in their family or whether it's, you know, their sort of like, you know, wage earning breadwinner sort of capacity or in physical protection and defense of the family or themselves or whatever. And so it makes me wonder if for a lot of men that that consumes so much of people's sort of like, you know, cerebrum or like their parts of their brain to where when it comes to things like I'm not comfortable, that's why I'm not happy. And that's why I'm acting this way that like almost those, like those neural pathways aren't as well developed, like, because you don't access them because they're not as useful in everyday life. And not as fact, useful in like, this culture. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, and so that, that as they, as they are not so useful, there's sort of like the atrophying that effect that kind of, you know, those things, those pathways get weaker and harder to access because we're not used to it. It's like any muscle you have to sort of train yourself. I think that I would argue that we as human beings have this essential need for a sense of purpose. I think um, different religions and philosophical perspectives have been exploring that through time. The the concept of Dharma, the purpose, having something guiding you, even just religion and having a higher power that sort of underst has a has a, a fate for you. Um, there is this concept that we're all drawn towards something. We're moving towards something that is this purpose. And so I don't know that that's just a male female thing. I think that's a sense of purpose. And then where so there's a genetic component for purpose in all of us. And yet then what our culture teaches us is what's acceptable as purpose like for men it's taught to be the earner to be productive to get a job to provide but for women it's to care it's to have children in many ways in our culture and so i think that how we talk about purpose and what we allow there to be available from really early on influences that sense of purpose and what we're driving for and when women's purpose is taught to them over and over about the collective, about caring, mm-hmm. about tending to children, women and women and women have to go through the, <laughs> the intensity of childbirth. I think that women are just set up to deal with a lot more discomfort yeah. in our culture and so have become accustomed to it, whereas men have been sort of in a feathered nest a little bit and not have to deal with the discomfort. And so then when the minor discomforts show up, it seems like a big deal. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I, uh, it's you talking about it in that way, like it makes me picture sort of this kind of, uh, like prehistoric sort of tribe of sorts of people and like all the women kind of being together, taking care of each other and the man coming up and be like, like, where's my purpose? And it's like, oh, it's over on that hill way over there. Like you got to go be a lookout, like by yourself all the time, you know, go be lonely. Like, you know, we have each other, you have your hill go you know that's such a fascinating metaphor and picture yeah you know and in that way it's like okay and you know in in this sort of illustration like the man like enthusiastically going because it's it's feels good to be given a job to do and that's important 
but then when you're out there, it's like you don't have the benefit of those ties and the and that sort of feedback loop right around you. And yeah, and, the, and in that way, it's like it's no wonder that that you know so often we develop it the way that we do. And I think it's important to be having this conversation, especially now with how quickly work is changing due to the pandemic and working from home and being in collective spaces much more often that are your, with your family and not being able to just escape to a job. And so you're no longer out there on that hill somewhere. Now we have to reformat the way we do relationships and connections and be with our families. And I, I think it's yeah. important to be having this conversation because so much change is happening right now and so much change specifically around like masculinity patriarchal structures is shifting and if we don't catch up and move along with it it's gonna be really it's, it's already really uncomfortable but i think it's just gonna get more and more uncomfortable yeah and and the complexity of it all right is the thing that still to this day when we talk about politics and we talk about people um you know maybe it's some of it's you could blame on Twitter, but I don't think that Twitter invented this idea that like we really do like those black and black or white solutions and answers to things. You know, it's like for in specifically for men, it's like, well, what's a man? And then, you know, there's millions of men who have a very clear answer. Like they'll tell you exactly what a man is when, you know, for me and maybe you're like this, too. Like the answer to that question is answered over the course of a lifetime. Mm. It's not something I can give you a, a 30 second, one minute, even one hour, even like give me a week. I'm still not really conveying this. You know, it's a lifetime that 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 answers these things through lived experience and through demonstrating, you know, what you mean. And but there's something that's really dissatisfying about that answer. Right. It's like, oh, that's cute. That's very poetic and very sort of like philosophic you know philosophical sounding but it doesn't it doesn't respond to my need right now you know for an answer because i need to go run off and go do something else kind of thing and so you know that some seems to like that effect and that desire unfortunately like in that sort of eating its tail way as you were saying before like it just it just really engenders this um this very shallow perspective on these things yeah, I think men are, I think the masculine energy is very much like problem and solution, problem, solution, problem. Right. It's very binary in that way. And I think there are gifts in the feminine that actually allow for the development rather than the solution, the, yeah. the over time development. I mean, even just like the development of a fetus into an infant and like in the birthing process is a whole process that you can't demand an answer right now. <laughs> it has to yeah. take its time. And so I think there are places where we as men can borrow from and learn from what women have been navigating and what people of people of color have been navigating what and what LGBTQ people have been navigating for a long time to allow themselves to to step into a new way of of looking at the world about um assessing the world about changing our worldview based on what actually the majority of the world is experiencing that is not white men. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not religious now, but I used to be. And um, aside from Mr. Rogers, like two of my heroes are actually like pastors that, uh, that taught me so much when I was a young person. I went to United Methodist church 
And uh, the people I'm talking about were, you know, they had PhDs in sociology. They weren't like Bible thumper types. They were very academic. And in fact, like in a physical way, both of these men actually resemble Mr. Rogers in terms of being very thin. And I think Mr. Rogers was like 148 pounds, I think he was, something like that. Anyway, um, the one of the things that one of these uh, that I was taught as a teenager, you know, so my youth pastor at the time, this guy, Daniel Shin, um, he, he, he kind of hinted to me, like, I have this thing that's like my, like his, his, like the ultimate calling sort of idea. And, and he kind of withheld it for a bit. And then finally he shared it with me and he said, like, I believe that our greatest calling is to creatively disturb each other. And I was like, my brain just exploded. I'm like, creatively disturb. And this is a guy whose English was he's like non-native English speaker. And so like, it's like slightly, you know, maybe not the, the, what somebody else might say, but yeah, his thing was like, our job is to creatively disturb each other, like as much as we can. And for me, it was really this, like this epiphany, like, yeah, our job is to, through the course of our life for each other and for ourselves like never let ourselves get too secure and complacent and too comfortable um, in, in, in any way, because ultimately in that comfort lies like stagnancy and complacency and, and apathy, which are all like antithetical to someone who is really interested in seeking truth and good and love and, and nurturing, like, you know, for, for others. And so that constant tension, again, like going back to Mr. Rogers, like a person who just seems so calm and in a lot of, for a lot of people, like so boring, you know, in a way, but like, to me, it's like, no, he's so not boring. Like that guy, again, is so dynamic and so like, just, just amazing in that way. Um, and the ways that he chose to creatively disturb, you know, people and, you know, taking a step back like in, in the ways that we might overvalue like follower count or clout, you know, in social media now, like that guy took a tiny show on, on a Pittsburgh public television station, you know, effectively like third tier market, sorry, Pittsburgh people, you know, <laughs> but then having it be a national, not only like show nationwide, but like, you know, part of the whole, his whole story about how like he was able to save public television when they were trying to get rid of it because he was able to convince, you know, a congressional uh, committee about the value of just those quiet moments of where children need to learn what's healthy and what love is. Um, that's, that's so epic. Zuckerberg or, you know, whoever like never accomplished stuff like that in front of Congress. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've heard you talk about this concept a couple of times in our private conversation, but now again here, this idea of like silence and space and how important silence and space is. Can you talk a little bit more about your perspective on why that's so important? Um, I do think that, I mean, it's funny you say that because I am, people who know me and my family would say I'm a pretty wordy, chatty kind of person. No way. <laughs> yeah, but 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 that said that um yeah, it really it's just like like that idea of like letting like making space for things and the ways that um maybe we can say like as men 
that our inclination is to um is very sort of there's the bias toward action and and to take up space rather than to leave space right right and so you know leaving that space open for for others and for the other things that can fill it um it it can be hard but it takes practice i'm practicing like i'm working on it all the time myself and um yeah i think there's a fear there when you leave the space that um that it feels like it can feel uncomfortable going back to the mask thing like it can feel uncomfortable and um there there's a strong inclination to want to alleviate ourselves and others from that discomfort but you know it's one of those things yeah it's i think that it's it's there's stuff to learn from that or just experience or even just to take a break from learning you know whatever it is in those moments that um yeah and so yeah i i feel like trying to fill it all the time it really does kind of it it trains us to have a certain sort of like frame of mind when approaching anything that um that can that not only can be sort of like harmful to ourselves but like harmful to others too yeah i think it does train us to be very much in that sort of i have to create everything and i have to do it all it's sort of like what you were saying about that image of now you go on the hill you go do your job over there on the hill it it does train us to be isolationist in some ways because it means all action is on me it's not a co-creation ever and so when we don't even leave space for there to be co-creation and to be inspired by others and to see what others bring into that space that we leave and watch what it does i mean you were saying this whole concept of of creative discomfort Mm-hmm. Is that what you say? Is that how the words you use? Yeah, like creative to creatively disturb. Yeah, you say creative disruption is one way to put it, I guess. But that but silence can be that new tool yeah. for creative disruption, creative disturbing. Because yeah. you're right, it does feel uncomfortable. Obviously, oftentimes to run up against that silence and against that space. But who are you as someone that confronts that scary thing? Are you someone that avoids it? Are you someone that fills the space? Are you somebody? Yeah. It actually is a tool to learn more about yourself and to grow if you allow it to be. Yeah. The discomfort thing is such an important pathway to so much more empathy in that way, I think. And, and, and again, like, I don't think it's a coincidence that, um, you know, say what you will about sort of women and, and clothing and, and things like that in terms of, you know, uh, prioritizing appearance over comfort but i know that that's been sort of a an interesting kind of eye-opening thing for me over the years just getting more fashionable and being a little bit less comfort prioritizing but what you're talking about also reminds me of another thing that i think is 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 um been really helpful for me in terms of the framing of a lot of these things which is is this idea like you know when we talk about race um there's a different way to delineate these things that isn't very popular but is a little bit like relates a little bit to what people talk about sometimes this idea of colonizer colonizer culture you know um and sometimes that's just a euphemism for like you know white supremacy or whatever but i think that it's there's there's something more to it than that 
So like I like colonizers. So what are we talking about? You know, colonialism, like imperialism, this idea, you know, you, and it's not only the purview of, of white people through history, right? It is the purview of a lot of European history. It's also like a lot of Asian history, like J Japan was a hell of a colonizer. You know, I'm Korean, like Korea actually never colonized anyone, you know, for better or for worse. You know, China and other other countries have, have done this too over over um, history. But, you know, when you're talking about it on the individual personal level, like what does colonizer culture mean? It's like, well, I think of colonizer culture as I see something of value and I'm going to take it. It's I wasn't invited to take it. It wasn't mine to take, but I'm taking it nonetheless. And in return, I offer what I see fit. I decide how much I give you, you know, and like, to me, like that's sort of colonizer mentality. And so when looking at any given situation, do you think about how does this work for everyone? Or do you think about it as how does this work for me? And how it works for everyone else is like, that's their problem kind of thing. Like that to me is very much colonizer culture. And I can say that because it's not, you know, a lot of people would think that's just human instinct. It's not, it's really not. Not in you my worldview, that's for sure. No, that's the thing. It's like, you know, one of the things people, I, I've not only have I traveled to Korea a lot, but I've been able to travel with like, you know, bringing friends and, and going there for like, you know, coffee industry events and stuff where it's a gathering of people from around the world. And one of the things that, that like just blows people's minds is the way that you could leave your cell phone on a park bench, forget it, come back six hours later, and it's highly likely it's still sitting there. And you know, so if the uninitiated would think like, oh, these people just are super good, nice, like uh, whatever, unselfish. It's like if you ask Koreans, well, why is it like this? Everyone's answer is the same. A Korean person looks at the situation and goes, wow, if I lost my phone like this, it would be really terrible. Like, so, you know, what's the what's the best I can do to to help? You know, there is that kind of collective mentality. It's not just like, well, right away, well, I could sell it or, oh, I could, I could use another second phone or like whatever, you know. And that's where that kind of colonizer mentality, like colonizer culture ends up sort of, again, becoming this vicious cycle where it, it breeds this, this society that we live in. A lot of it obviously, obviously has to do with capitalism too. But I do think those two things are a little distinct. And... Um, yeah. So ultimately, if it's like, well, I'm going to worry about what's in it for me and what's in it for anyone else is their problem. Like, it doesn't have to be that way. But in a lot of ways, like in America specifically, we really have equated that with a certain like fat as a certain facet of being masculine, yeah. like dominating others, like, you know, who's alpha, who's beta, you know, kind of thing. And um, yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. There is There are other ways of being. I'm so glad you brought up the, the the reference to capitalism too, because I think it, I just keep finding myself more and more drawn to exploring how being living and tr being trained within a capitalist society, how that trains your mind to think and your psychology to think in a certain way. And I, I do agree with you that colonizer culture and capitalism are different and there are, they have their own spaces and they're not inherently capitalism and in, capitalism isn't inherently a bad thing. 
But when you've got a U.S. culture that is all about independence, colonization, um, taking land, taking people, um, and you have a capitalist m mentality that's all about like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you have to make your own success and your productivity is what su is successful in this culture. And so we got a lot of systems set up that create a lot of individualism and that create a lot of willingness to take power over people or to take from people, as you were saying. Yeah, I, I, I was talking with some folks sort of calling into question that Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey concept, mm -hmm. which is held up as sort of like a very human thing. But I would, I would propose that that's colonizer culture propaganda too. You know, this idea of the hero's journey is that fundamentally it's about that individual sort of development. The arc happens for them. And that when you take those stories and you, you know, in media, be it in the form of Star Wars or like whatever, and you, you know, internalize that as being like part of the human, the human existence of the, like the human, um, uh, uh, yeah, like just like a normal sort of human existence thing. It normalizes this idea of, again, like as an individual moving through the world just accumulating and taking, I mean, effectively value from others because it makes you into the person that you are because that's the priority. Um, well, I think it's interesting because yeah. I think so much of the hero's journey that's focused on and talked about is the going out into the wilderness alone, facing the battles, the sort of the, the odyssey that Odysseus goes on. It's like, it, that's the thing. I think in many like native, uh, Native American cultures, a lot of indigenous cultures would tell that story in very much of like, yes, there are rites of passages that you go through that are out on your own, that you explore the things you would confront as an individual. But there's always the return arc back to the collective, back to the community to share what you've learned and to impart that wisdom and to bring it forward to benefit the whole. And I think that part's just so often forgotten, at least in colonizer culture or in U.S. white culture, um, is that return back. That, yes, that, that the rites of passage moment out there in the wilderness is a part of the journey, but it is not, in my opinion, where the most focus of it should be and is. Yeah. You know, and but then there's also like the parts where a lot of the conflict that the the hero faces are, you know, if it was a real life story, you know, some of these, like these sort of exotic beings that these heroes encounter would just kind of look over their shoulder and be like, uh-huh. And just like mm -hmm. turn their back and not engage, <laughs> you know, look at, look at that weirdo. What are they doing here? And then that'd be the end of the, then you don't have a story. You don't have conflict that drives things forward. So then when you bring the conflict back in, then it creates this, again, the situation where it's like the protagonist, you know, who the reader is, is relating to is encountering all these oddities and weird, strange, you know, creatures and, and beings. And that part of the job of that, of that hero is to dominate those, those others, you know, and ultimately win and move on to the next, the next level in their video game you know, kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's and, so true. The addiction to conflict that we have and our storytelling and the way that we create our own identity is through this addiction to conflict and overcoming. Overcome, yeah. overcome, overcome. 
but it isn't just in a like I had cancer and I overcame that. It is I dominated that and destroyed it. Right. When Charlie Sheen went through that phase, and, uh, winning, everything was winning. It was it was like the winning thing. Like when he started saying that as just like the st- in the ways that he he would say it. It's like it was so off putting, but also it made so much sense that somebody would just like define all things as being about winning or not winning. Yeah, I mean, we're getting to see that our president does that all the time. That's, totally. that's everything is about winning or not winning, right? And power and not power. Yeah. So it's been a really fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed you and I are both very verbose, um, talkative <laughs> folks. Um, I think that's why yeah. we connect so well. Yeah. If you were able to give men one piece of advice, something you'd like to leave the people living, listening to this podcast with, what would that be? I guess if there was one piece of advice that I have, it's the kind of beauty and show of strength and confidence in saying, I don't know, and offering that that you really don't, you know, that I think as men, we're socialized that um, knowledge is power is a thing that we talk about. And that saying, I don't know, feels like losing, that it feels like, um, like admitting defeat in some way. But Again, that is we've been talking about, like that's only in the framing, this weird kind of socialized framing of like winning and losing. But that when we're really seeking truth, and the truth of the matter is that you don't know, that I I just find like that even to this day, like it just is so rare and refreshing when specifically a man says, you know what, like I don't know, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think it's really important and, and I feel like it's, it's more in a lot of ways, it's more helpful and not in all ways, but in a lot of ways, more helpful to actually just say, I don't know when you're not sure or when you don't know, then, then to, you know, again, fill that space with, with something that, that we actually aren't really equipped to, to, um, convey or offer up. Yeah, that I don't know, as you were just saying, like, is that moment right before the silence, right before the space, where the growth edge is for many of us, to know who you are in those moments that you don't know, and when you don't fill the space, when you allow the space and see who you are as you navigate that. I think that is such a beautiful, like, sort of wrap up of everything you're talking about, and a beautiful way to sort of, like, point to where the growth edge is for most of us as men. Many of us are already doing an, a lot of trying to dismantle our sort of patriarchal ideas and our uh, um, uh, looking at where we are disenfranchising each other and the non-male people in our lives. And yet there is still more to do. There's still another growing edge there to see who are you in the unknown when you do say, I don't know. Thank you for sharing that. So if people wanted to connect with you, find you out there on the interwebs, how might they do that? Oh, wow. Well, I'm on Twitter, Nick Cho, N-I-C-K-C-H-O. And then I have NickCho.com. That actually is one of those websites that has a little icon for every kind of like social media or like whatever that I, that I have out there. 
So yeah, that's that's one way to find me. But I don't really have anything to promote. We make coffee. It's yummy if you want. You can find me there as well. But otherwise, um, I just, you know, I wish you well, Travis, and I wish everyone well. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think my introduction to you, as I said, was through TikTok. So you can find him on your at your Korean dad. That's right, your Korean dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth watching. It's worth being entertained. It's worth watching the sort of subversive way that you're sharing a perspective, but in a very like non-threatening, very accepting and inclusive way. I think it's really powerful. And closing in at this moment, closing in on four hundred thousand followers, which blows my mind. Oh, that's insane. And I've, uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, I have inspired at least one copycat, which is fantastic. It was weird for like a day, kind of like awkward, but then I realized like what a wonderful thing to be able to share with other people. Right. What it, remind me what it is you told me before. It's Oh, this person started doing, um, their name's Thaddeus, I think, but th- they, uh, they started, hey, I'm your non-binary uncle a-u-n-c-l-e like like non-binary like uh mixture of aunt and uncle yeah uncle and um is doing a lot of trying to connect with um lgbtq and specifically like non-binary and trans kids and it, it's beautiful it's beautiful to it. see and and what a what an honor to be have been able to like inspire something like that and they did credit me with that so that is so powerful to know that you're sort of influence has been inspired somebody else that's creating even more inclusive and, and, and knowledge-based communities about certain people that don't usually have a voice in our culture yeah that's great if people want to connect with me you can go to my website at travisstock.com you can go to my instagram at travers03 or you can email me directly at travisstock03 at gmail.com This podcast is also on Patreon recently. I'm using this Patreon as a way to help me continue this movement, but also um, to help support organizations that are doing good in the world. And so it's a pay it forward kind of thing. Things that you contribute, part of them, uh, part of those contributions go towards organizations uh, that are doing good in the world. So if you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash the new masculine. Again, that's patreon.com slash the new masculine. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining me. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation, and I look forward to our future connections um, out there in the world. Likewise. Thanks, Travis.